The campfire was the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California's history. The fire caused at least 85 civilian deaths, covered an area of 153,336 acres, and destroyed more than 18,000 structures. The total cost of the California campfire so far is around $16.65 billion. That's according to California public radio station KQED. This week, journalist Lizzie Johnson looks at the root causes of the campfire. Here she explains how the town of Paradise was completely destroyed by the fire. Paradise was a really, really fire-prone place. In all of the planning documents that I read, um, firefighting officials called it the Paradise Problem, you know, because, again, this town was tucked between two geological chimneys that would just carry fire right up. There were very few evacuation routes, and they knew that people were going to get trapped if a major fire were to roll through. She's interviewed by Terry Baker, CEO of the Society of American Foresters. More in a moment. Thank you so much for joining us for this great discussion about your book, Paradise, One Town Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire. And uh, really grateful for the opportunity to speak with you and to speak in some ways on behalf of uh, my 9,000 plus members who are professionals in the field of forestry and wildland firefighting. Uh, and to get some of your insights, because I, I have to say, I really, really enjoyed the book uh, and the way that you wove the story together. And so um, I'd really like to just kick things off by uh, getting to, to hear a little bit more about you uh, as I've uh, done a little digging myself, you know, <laughs> to hear the story that you have, uh, you know, made your way from Nebraska to, uh, you know, uh, journalism for City Hall in San Francisco to covering wildfires. So um, let's start off there. Just how did you make that journey? And um, and I'll, I'll have a fun add in afterwards. So I'm looking forward to just hearing a little piece of how you made it to where you are and and um, and what you've learned along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me. It's nice to be here today with you. So I grew up in Nebraska and my first job out of college was at the San Francisco Chronicle in California. I was hired to cover local politics, and I always joke that City Hall is its own kind of fire. (laughs) Um, So after doing that for a few years, I realized I was looking for a change. And so I moved to the general assignment desk where really you can write about anything. That was around the time that the wildfires in California and across the greater West were starting to get really bad. Um, You know, we had the wine country fires in 2017, which shocked the state and the nation. Um, And then after that, the acceleration just continued where every summer it seemed like records were getting topped, the fires were getting bigger, thousands more homes were burning down than they did the previous summer. And so, you know, by the time the campfire rolled around in 2018, I had been covering fires for a while and spent a lot of time in the town of Paradise, both when the fire was burning and then afterwards writing about you know, the ways in which the disaster lived on, even after the flames had gone out. Wow. No, that's uh, yeah, quite the journey. And I can imagine, yes, yeah, City Hall can definitely be its own type of fire. <laughs> um, you know, in, in, the, in the profession of forestry and natural resources, oftentimes we talk about uh, how it's, we're such a closed community and, and, uh, and it's a <clears throat> very small degrees of separation, especially related to fire fighting wildfires and folks coming from across the country. And so um, our little known Fun fact is that, that I actually worked in Nebraska for a couple of years on the Nebraska National Forest and Grasslands out in Halsey. So we have a connection that we didn't even know about. Wow, that's crazy. Wait, what were you doing out there? <laughs> I was a district ranger. So I oversaw the uh, the two pieces of uh, man-made forest out in central Nebraska. And uh, 
was co-located with the Bessie Nursery as well. And so had a lot of fun adventures uh, managing that really interesting, very small piece of public land in, in Nebraska. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. that's so wild to hear I feel like normally when I tell people I'm from Nebraska they're like oh I think I flew over it one time <laughs> or drove through it or and, drove uh, through it corn, it was flat but... <laughs> you drive a tractor to school so very exactly. cool that you used to work there too yeah yeah I know a little bit about Dorothy Lynch so yeah it's uh, <laughs> fun little nuggets that we have along the way um, thank god for so... Dorothy Lynch <laughs> So with that, and, and as you talk about your journey and, and coming into this space, um, I really wanted to, to give you some kudos around your, your use and, and what I saw was the weaving of technical knowledge um, around forestry and wildland firefighting into your storytelling. It was just really uh, profound for me and definitely one of those moments where I was a little proud as a professional, like, like this is impressive. Like you, you actually, you, you know some of the terms in your, but you're also using them in a way where I pick up on that, but the, the person who's not a professional in forestry and natural resources could, it made sense to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a great, a great piece of for me was like the flaming front moved, you know, a football field every second. And, and that's just used as all the time as kind of like that, that anecdote within firefighting. And so I, I just wanted to understand a little bit more about how you developed that deeper understanding of the technical expertise around how fires and forest management work. So I, as a journalist, I view so much of my job as translating things, helping people understand really technical concepts that maybe they don't otherwise. I think particularly when it comes to, you know, like politics for a while, helping people understand the decisions that were being made that impacted their lives. And then later with firefighting too, because I think a lot of people don't understand all that goes into it. I know that even when I started covering wildfires, I didn't understand that so often how those blazes are contained is not by actually using water, but by digging dirt patches and starving the fire bear. Um, So in trying to learn as much as I could about it, I actually went through a professional firing academy with the county north of San Francisco. Um, It was two weeks. I learned about structural firefighting, went through the Wildland Firefighting Academy. They actually had me out on an engine and, you know, lit a field on fire and I had to go chase it down and put it out. So that both taught me how it felt, like how heavy that gear was, how hard they worked, how the tools actually felt in my hands. Um, And then also just all of the terminology and understanding, you know, this is what it means. And um, on the ground, this is what it looks like. So that when I was writing about it, it didn't feel jargony and I could help people understand what it was like. Excellent. No, that's, uh, that's definitely immersing yourself in the world of wildland firefighting. Um, I'm sure it was quite the experience and, and uh, definitely having experienced it myself in my career. And so with that, was there anything, I, was there anything that really resonated with you going through that training or, or some of the terminology? Was there something that you were like, I would have never thought this is the name or this, this, or this has a name, you know, in a sense. Mm -hmm. I think for me, it was the thing that really stuck with me was less um, terminology and more the lived experience of the firefighters. You know, every summer it felt like I was hearing fire chiefs say over and over again, oh, this is the new normal. This is the new normal to the point where that sense of what the new normal was sort of lost all meaning altogether. And so in that firefighting academy, they spent a lot of time talking about the fact that these new recruits were going to have to deal with emotional experiences that were really, really hard and how you carry those with you 
what you do when you're in a situation where you can't put the fire out and you can't save homes and it comes down to just saving lives, realizing that, you know, the way firefighting was being taught in that regard had sort of changed because the landscape had changed and they were seeing more and more of these fires that were totally uncontainable and bigger than what they could do anything to be back. So I think that was something that really, really stuck with me. Just those frank conversations of what do you do when you're a firefighter and you can't fight the fire? Mm. No, that's a great point. And especially I I noticed some of that in your book as well, when it related to, um, you know, feeling of losing, you know, for firefighters, the pride they take in and being able to um, stop a fire or save someone's home. Uh, and, and, and in essence, when you lose in firefighting, that there's safety at stake, there's property at stake. Uh, and, and like you mentioned, the, the, the emotional toll, which we don't talk about much, but like you mentioned, I think is becoming more and more of a conversation because uh, not only is it the communities that these folks are trying to protect, oftentimes they may actually live in some of these communities and, and mm-hmm. have to try to fight a fire while their home is being evacuated and their, their pets or, or, um, or other animals and, and their families have to you know, be taken out, you know, taken somewhere else. So, so it really is uh, a growing challenge that I know there are more and more conversations being had about that. Um, yeah. So thank you for sharing that piece. Um, yeah. The next thought I had uh, was the, the concept of how, like you mentioned, this part of being a translator. And, and that, that's such, a, such an important piece. Um, as I speak with my members and with other professionals in this, in this sector, Oftentimes, I, I speak to them about the concept of um, being willing to, to engage, you know, communities in a way that's related to valuing the outdoors and valuing the land uh, versus jumping to a very technical explanation for uh, what's happened or what's going to happen. Um, have, you seen, uh, have you seen or do you think that there's, there, there are other barriers or there are specific barriers around that, uh, very technical, very technical aspect of what we're trying to convey to the public around why fires happen and and what people need to do to try to get ahead of them prior to them happening. Um, Are there barriers in the language? Are there barriers from from the professionals uh, from your perspective? Because I I do know, uh, you know, I I jokingly say I I got into forestry so I didn't have to talk to people and I could just hang out with trees. And and now I'm talking to a lot of people about uh, about the trees. So um, <laughs> just curious to your thoughts on that concept of, of what are some of these barriers to this this translation and this communication? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, again, people who don't understand firefighting, it is a very bizarre thing for them to wrap their heads around. And I think too, that, that, that space that, um, you know, civilians and first responders occupy together is becoming broader because these disasters are getting worse where, you know, increasingly firefighters aren't just trying to save homes or put out fires, but they're having to educate people in advance of what to do and how to prepare. And that's a really tough job because there is um, a knowledge gap, right? If you're a firefighter and you've seen these really bad fires summer after summer, you know what stands to be lost, but it can be really hard to convince a community that hasn't burned down yet or narrowly managed avoiding being burned down, that it is a very serious threat because I think there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance there, right? Like, you know what your past experience was and if you're okay, then you're like, well, maybe I don't have to take this as seriously. I know the fire chief is telling me to pack a go bag, but my house didn't burn down last summer and, you know, the town did some work, so maybe I should be okay. 
I think it's, it's a tough task for firefighters and, uh, you know, other first responders to have to do is inform people ahead and how to best prepare themselves for these disasters when, you know, the people don't always necessarily um, understand why it is they need to be so prepared, if that makes yeah. sense. No, actually, I, it's a it's a great point, and it's and you know it's that piece of being reactive versus being proactive, and it's and even even when like you mentioned, fires come within you know feet in some cases of communities, and they're just like, well, we made it. That means it's almost that little bit of invincibility. Like, well, it, it just didn't reach us the last time. Um, mm-hmm. I'm originally from Florida, and so it's hurricanes, and it's yeah. kind of the same thing. They're like, well, one passed over before, and everything was fine. Um, so, so it it is that big challenge for, like we mentioned, first responders and communities. Um, I think also for policymakers, it's one of those things that as we look at policy, um, and, and the overall implications of those policy, both, you know, from a a national level and a local level, um, the ability to, to engage in policy discussions and put policies in place that are really helpful and supportive of, of what realities we're facing right now. So, um, obviously, I'm sure you may or may not have heard there's more and more conversations as forests as a climate solution. Uh, there's more attention being paid to that. Um, where do you see opportunities around um, the impacts of these fires and the, the mitigations of these fires in, in the policy arena and the discussions that are happening now the, with the Trillion Trees Act and so many other things being discussed in the forestry and natural resource space? Yeah, I think the big thing is just making sure that we're all having the same conversation. I think it's really difficult to enact change and be proactive, like you said, versus reactive when people aren't on the same page having the same conversation about what these fires are like, right? So again, you know, if you're trying to help places that haven't burned down yet and they don't necessarily see it as a threat as much as the the people in um policy do or as the firefighters do or as the foresters do it can be really hard to be like no this is important we actually need to do it particularly because you know funding is hard and public support is hard and so I think that's the biggest thing right now is just being like well what is the conversation that we're having and we do need to take this seriously because these fires are getting worse year after year you know being in that conversation, and like you mentioned, everyone trying to have a similar or close to the same conversation as possible, uh, it, it definitely makes me think about, you know, for lack of a better term, tools in the toolbox. So there's obviously those things that we try to do um, for forest health ahead of the game and how we manage that. Uh, in particular, what comes to mind is prescribed fire. And, and for me, mm-hmm. that comes to mind. Um, organizationally, uh, SAF just released a, a national position statement on promoting the use of prescribed fire. And as I'm sure some of your work has led to you to understand like prescribed fire is not necessarily as strongly adopted in the Western states as it has been in the Eastern U.S. And so really just curious about your thoughts on, again, how we continue to move this conversation forward on, on a proactive treatments for forest health, where the, you know, the, that visual, and, and in this case, when you have a community affected by a large fire like the campfire, the visceral response of seeing smoke in the air, but knowing that it's intentional and it's um, for the greater good. Mm-hmm. You know, everything you were saying just reminded me of something that happened last summer in Butte County. And for mm-hmm. those of you that you know don't remember, Butte County is where the town of Paradise was. Um, it got hit by the campfire in 2018, and it's getting hit again this year by the Dixie Fire. Uh, last summer, uh, lightning strikes ignited 
a massive blaze there called the North Complex Fire, and it ended up running through a couple of small communities near Paradise. And those were areas that the local Fire Safe Council had realized needed help. And so they were trying to secure grants for prescribed fire and to do thinning. And it just took a really long time to get the community on board and then to get the funding for that. And it was only a short while before the fire that they did get the money and they were going to do it. And it's so hard to know whether that would have changed anything, whether that would have changed the fate of those places. But I know there were a lot of people that were frustrated when the fires rolled through because they were like, we were so close and maybe there was something we could have done to lower the intensity of these fires. But again, it's like what you were speaking to, it can be really hard to convince people, you know, that important and as hard as it is seeing smoke in the sky in February, that that could be the difference in their community burning down or not. No, that's a, that's, oof, that's a, that's a challenging thing to hear. And, and I mean, especially, you know, again, just being that close, um, you know, many conversations I've had in my career have been that with fire managers has been that conversation of looking at um, communities like paradise and, and uh, those landscapes and saying, you know, it's, it's not a matter of if, but when. And so mm-hmm. to, to put, you know, the community in its best space to put the, the firefighters in the best space to be successful really is, that key component and, and, um, and you just never know. And it's, it's that race against time a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Another, you know, step down that policy piece, you know, I, I really was curious as to your thoughts on um, not so much of policy, but maybe even a, a strategy as you were talking about in your book around um, Pacific gas and electric and the, the, the whole conversations that were happening around, uh, you know, uh, de-energizing the lines leading up to this wind event and that there was a back and forth. There was all the pushback. There was very, very strong um, responses from people that, you know, don't do this. And, and if you do this, it's going to, the amount of time it takes to re-energize the lines. Um, but I think that that speaks to the, your earlier point about the difficulty of getting ahead of these things with communities and realizing we have these these utility corridors that that can be very impactful and lead to even more significant impacts. Um, but you know, with a with a community that actually either hasn't faced a fire or um, or something of that nature that's been caused by up down power lines, then the challenge becomes how do you convince them it's worth de-energizing these lines for a certain amount of time. So I, I was just wondering, as you did all those interviews and did your research, like how did that come together? And, and do you think there's anything that could help convey that message to a community, especially maybe not in California that that face those winds, um, but they may face them in other parts of the country through a unique wind event. Right. You know, I I kept finding myself nodding the entire time you were talking because you were hitting so many great points. Um, Yeah, it's really, you know, the situation that we have found ourselves in particularly is, you know, climate change worsens and the environment that we're on is very different than it was 10 years ago. So you have this really vulnerable electrical infrastructure that it goes right across really fire prone land that's super dry and, you know, overgrown with dead and diseased trees. I think that people understand more now that it is really important to try and problem solve in the ways that that is possible Um, for the Pacific Gas and Electric Company, which is the largest power provider in California that has meant turning off the power. They're like, this is the best tool in the toolbox to steal your phrase that we have right now. And, you know, there are 
serious issues with that. People who are uh, medically vulnerable have interrupted medical care. People can't charge their phones. Like I get it, honestly, that's, that's very, very hard. But at the same time, you know, we have seen summer after summer headlines of, you know, PG&E starting another fire. It seems like we haven't had a year as, as long as I can remember for the past like five years where that hasn't happened. I think the issue with that is that um, people mostly see the inconvenience. It's hard to actually see the trade-off of that, right? Because you can't just say, oh, this is the fire that would have started and this fire would have burned down this town or this fire would have burned through this community or burned through this many homes. Um, There is no tangible thing that you can hold up and say, this is what we prevented, right? So I think people are left with that taste in their mouths of, oh, you know, school got canceled. It was another week without power. We didn't have air conditioning in our homes. And so even if you intellectually know that there's a point to that, emotionally your experience of being gravely inconvenienced or again, seriously inconvenienced by interrupted medical care, that's a really hard thing to overcome. Um, So I think, you know, it's just the reality that we're living in now. And it comes back again to what I was saying earlier about making sure that we're having the same conversation and understanding that these fires aren't going away, that we're, we're living with, you know, our, our legacies of how we've managed the forest and how we've, um, how we've approached climate change and where we have built homes and how we have hardened the grid. And so now we're left with some really hard choices. And sometimes those choices mean being inconvenienced. Mm. Well, that's a great, those are great points. Really, really, really important points, especially, you know, again, the, the built environment with the natural environment. And that's now, that's our reality. You know, it actually, it has been our reality, but it's the impacts now are so significant that we have to be more mindful of that. Um, you led actually into my, my next question. So uh, perfect leading Perfect. Around. Um, past management practices, you know, you mentioned uh, during some town hall meetings that the, um, the the county sheriff had to, you know, engage and answer some very difficult questions. And, and part of that uh, referenced the challenge related to PG&E, obviously, but also, um, you know, the mismanagement of the forest through policies related to go out and put the fire out, keep it as small as possible. Um, and I'll, I'll be totally honest, it was, it was one of those moments in reading the book where I was just like, uh, you know, took a step back as a forester. I'm like, mismanage the forest by the foresters. There's no such thing. Um, but it, it was, you know, it, it was good. It was good to have that point because, you know, again, we all have a, we all have a role and a stake in, in how these lands are managed in particular and what advice is given and, and how we operate through that. And so I think that um, there's, there's that important balance there of, of how we sustainably manage forests given the presence of people uh, and the presence of, you know, of, our, of our infrastructure. And so I wanted to, to, to thank you for putting that piece in there because at first I was just like, I was taken aback a little bit, but I think it was a, it was a key point. Um, and it's not so much that, uh, that it's something that we can't move past, but it's that, like you were just mentioning, evolution. What is the evolution of our forest management as communities continue to grow into wilder spaces? And so um, <clears throat> I wanted to, to get to this place around the, the, you know, a little bit back to our, our piece around um, how we manage leading up to these fires, also how we manage after these fires. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that probably some of the conversations that that you may have had uh, following the paradise fire, well, following the campfire in paradise, was were some of these conversations, of course, that come up around um, tree removal. You know, some folks definitely, you know, they don't like the word salvage logging, but this piece of how do you address trees that are in some cases are obviously, you know, have have died during the fire, but also the projection, like you mentioned, that projection of what's to come. And mm-hmm. so the projection of trees that that will likely uh, not make it and, and impact homes or or roads or whatever it may be after the fact. So I was just wondering, did you have any conversations with with community members where where there was there was some of that response already happening? The concerns about what it would look like and and how um, trying to to make these areas safe for them where we're going to impact those same vistas that caused them to move to where they were. Right. So, I mean, you have to remember that people loved paradise because of where it was at. You know, it was this town of 26,000 people up in the foothills, these big, beautiful canyons on both sides. You know, people talked about the towering ponderosa pines and how you could tell it was the first day of summer because the air smelled like, you know, warm sap and how at Christmas they were covered in snow. People really loved those trees. And so I think after the fire, one of the big things was, you know, what do you do with all of these trees that gave the town its identity? It's on the town crest, right? It's like very built into both the environment and people's collective sense of identity. But so many of those trees died. And, um, you know, I think the decision surrounding those trees was really emblematic of also the larger conversations happening about how we're living on the landscape because the conversation changes when you have people living in there and you have homes in there. And, you know, the foresters really look like that tree is going to fall over and we would really prefer if it didn't hit a house or hit a car or like hit a person. So as much as you love it and as, as much as the tree looks like it's fine, it's not fine and it has to come down. So that was one part of the conversation. And then I think the second part too is, you know, how do you pay for that? Um, Paradise was a very working class community. Uh, They always joked in town that, you know, the populace was either nearly dead or uh, newly wed because the demographic was so skewed. It was a lot of retirees who wanted to live close to nature and then a lot of younger families who could actually afford to build a life there. So not an extremely privileged demographic with a lot of expendable income to spend cutting down, you know, upwards of like 50 to 100 trees on their property. So again, it's like, how do you have those conversations when at a certain point choice feels like a privilege and also it feels like your identity. And even though you might understand that it's the safe thing to do, it's still very emotionally hard when you've lost everything to look at the trees that were outside of your window your entire life and be like, okay, well, they all have to go. And I think that that like makes it hard when you're having, um, you know, a combination of a technical uh, conversation, a science conversation and an emotional conversation with people trying to decide what their community will become. You know, that's, that's, that resonates so much. And the, the thought that it brings back to me is actually, um, one of the, the parts of your book when you were discussing the school bus going down Row Road. And, you know, it's this road where one of the teachers was like, I always thought this was, you know, paradise's rainforest. And the bus driver's like, this is fuel. And we're taking a bus down this overgrown road with all these, you know, all these veg, you know, uh, 
shrubs and vegetation and underneath the ponderosa pine trees in a massive fire trying to evacuate. You know, it, it is, it's kind of that, that culmination of the, the worst possible scenarios in that, that type of situation. And so oftentimes, again, you, you, your mind just doesn't go there. There's nothing mm-hmm. to push you to that place. It doesn't go there. Um, the, the challenge is remembering and what actions do you take on the back end? And, and that's, that's one of the last things I want to think, uh, just ask about a little bit on the policy side of things, which is really the local policy. Um, and you mentioned the, the challenges of the, the evacuation and everything from originally having a four-lane highway that was, that was brought down to two and, and trying to slow traffic in town from the standpoint of people being safer, but in the sense of evacuation, it's, it was, you know, created massive congestion. Uh, not to mention also when they would try to run scenarios and, and uh, exercises, having a very small population of the, of the community come out to participate in those exercises. So, so I was wondering in your conversations with folks, both the, the town manager to some of the community members, like what were some of those thoughts? Was there, was there some reflection on what it was like to, to, in some cases, have ignored some of those concerns that were being brought forward by, by Cal Fire and others related to if something happens, being able to safely evacuate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I know I sound like a broken record, but I keep coming back to we need to have the same conversation and make sure that we're on the same page. I think, you know, it is important to note that Paradise was a town that was pretty well prepared as far as towns go. They had actually thought about an evacuation plan. They had tried to practice it, but of course the people in town saw it more as an inconvenience and largely avoided the the evacuation drill. Um, I mean, not unlike, I mean, think about how annoyed you would feel if you had to practice an evacuation from your office building right? I think it's just human nature to assume this is just an inconvenience. We won't actually have to use it. And so that's what planners were up against, even as they knew that Paradise was a really, really fire-prone place. In all of the planning documents that I read, um, firefighting officials called it the Paradise problem, you know, because again, this town was tucked between two geological chimneys that would just carry fire right up. There were very few evacuation routes and they knew that people were going to get trapped if a major fire were to roll through. And they knew that that was a possibility, but it's sort of like planning for the 100 year flood. And so that is something that those in town hall were grappling with, right? It's like, how do you balance the concerns of your constituents, making town a beautiful, safe place to live and understanding that you had a limited amount of money coming in because it was a more impoverished community um, you know, it's not like their coffers were overflowing and they could just build another rope over the side of a canyon to help people get out. So they were dealing with all of that while also trying to understand, you know, how much do you plan for the 100 year fire? Um, and so I think there were decades of decision making that went into play where people were planning for the fires that they had known in the past. And those fires never burned all the way through town. They were always stopped. And so with that came a false sense of security. And so, you know, there were decisions they could have made that would have, again, it's like impossible to know without looking in a crystal ball, but it seems like they would have made the evacuation efforts during the campfire a little easier and a little smoother. But again, you know, they had these other concerns to look at too. And I think paradise is just so emblematic again of all of these places across California and across the West of 
how do you keep people safe, but how do you make those hard decisions where the calculus is changing, right? Now you can't just assume that your town will be safe next time because we're seeing fires act in ways that just seem totally unfathomable compared to what we knew a decade ago. And so you have to start putting money in places where you didn't think you would and having to make those really hard decisions of, okay, well, how are we going to get people out? Because that 100 year fire is now, you know, something like a lot more frequent than you would think. So true. And that's the thing, I think you, you make a great point in that sense of, you know, is it the everyday safety or is it the hundred year safety? But now we're starting to move into really the, the five and 10 year safety piece as far as that question goes. And, and that, that takes a, a rewiring of how you look at the grand scheme of things. Um, actually, you know, I, I think that you mentioned something that really just came to mind related to some of the, the current conversations that are happening around, you know, infrastructure legislation, this administration's emphasis on infrastructure, um, you know, and, and the fact that actually forests have been included in some of these infrastructure bills. So the, the, the concept that forests are just as important as bridges and roads and the opportunities that that creates for, uh, for infusions of dollars into possibly communities like Paradise. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, just the concept that, that we're now as a nation being willing to see forests almost in the same light as, as roads and bridges, because that's, that's exciting for me as a forestry professional. <laughs> it's like, we've been telling you all along, and, you know, but, uh, but the reality is that it's, uh, it really is significant to start looking at forests in that way. Um, and the role that they play in these communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, infrastructure on its own is already not very sexy to a lot of people. So they don't really think about it. And I think forests in particular, people think even less about, right? They think of like a crumbling bridge versus a really, you know, tangled forest. And I think, again, having those conversations is really important because it could change the outcome of the fate of towns like Paradise. For example, I know the town right now is spending a lot of time thinking about um, buying up empty lots near parks to try and keep that as like a fire break area in case a fire rolls through town. But you need money for that. And, you know, that's not something that these these communities always have. And so, you know, infrastructure bills help with that um, and help put the onus on future conversations about how are we building how can we make places safer and where should we be putting communities in the future? And those weren't conversations I think that were necessarily happening as much a couple of decades ago. So it's really encouraging to know that now people are talking about it more. So, I mean, I, I had a little bit of a follow-up. So does that make you a little bit more hopeful um, for communities like Paradise and others that, that are these small um, rural communities, especially in the mountains that, that, policymakers at the national level really starting to, to see and tie this picture together around the importance of um, really healthy forests in, in and around these communities and the impacts that they have. Is there, is there a little bit more hope uh, given the, the, uh, the, the catastrophic impacts of a fire like the campfire and, and so many others that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, you know, it, it does give me hope that people are talking about solutions. I think for a long time, I felt very doom and gloom because so much of my job is holding a mirror up to the problem to get people to pay attention. You know, when I started covering fires a couple of years ago, there were very few people that covered it long-term and showed the ways in which these communities really struggled. And 
at the time it was really hard to keep covering that same kind of storyline over and over with there never being a break in the narrative and there never being a solution. So it, it does give me hope and it is encouraging to be like, well, maybe this isn't something that we have to relive every single year for eternity, right? If we have smart people that are making better decisions and we're actually trying to figure this out. Well, I think you find yourself in some very unique company as finding hope in politics in 2021. So congratulations oh on that. <laughs> Wow, what a way to phrase it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you got to find the bright side of something. Um, so one of the things I did want to follow up with you on is um, around your, around the book in and of itself. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your, your method of writing this book? You know, you kind of tie it in that piece of covering these stories. And like you said, it's a bit of doom and gloom and, and all the pieces just aren't there to try to really make these things better. And so stepping away from the journalism to actually write a book about one of these stories and really delve into, um, you know, how you wove together the different characters. And, and when I say characters, uh, apologetically, I mean, I know these were people and, and people who have very unique stories uh, that all tied to this fire into the community of paradise. And so I just want to hear some of your thoughts of, of making a step to write a book about this. Um, I'm sure probably being in the, the headspace of, what you had seen over and over again. Mm -hmm. So I, I ended up writing the book because I had reported so much that I realized it couldn't fit in a newspaper anymore. And I was like, wow, my editor is going to be really mad at me if I try and write something out of this because it'll be the entire newspaper. And I think too, there was that sense of, you know, wanting to create something more lasting that would help people understand what was happening in California particularly because, you know, every time that I would either visit the East Coast or go home and visit my family in the Midwest, there is this sense of ignorance, people not really understanding, just being like, oh yeah, California is burning again. And, you know, that always kind of rubbed me the wrong way because I knew that the smoke that people saw so inconvenient was everything that made up people's lives and it was actual people's lives and it wasn't just an inconvenience. And so, it's like, if I can help people understand what these fires feel like and the impact that they have and what it means for the rest of us and that it's just this awful um, harbinger of climate change and, you know, it's not something that's 10 years down the road, it's here and we're living with it. And it's just most evident right now with the ferocity and violence of these fires. So, you know, in writing the book, I always say that I'm an expert first and foremost in normal people's lives. You know, I like learn as much as I can about fire and the electrical grid, but I pride myself most on really getting to know the people and to understand what their lives looked like and the hard decisions they had to make when the fire rolled into town that morning. And then the hard decisions they had to make after the fact is they figured out whether they could rebuild their lives or would rebuild their lives or whether this is something that would haunt them forever. How do you survive a fire like that? So I did all of that reporting. I get really obsessive about it. I went through and listened to every single 911 call that came into the sheriff's office and the local police departments that morning. Um, read thousands of pages of court documents um, chronicling PG&E's probation. Um, read as much as I could about firefighting. Went into the archives in Sacramento and San Francisco and in Butte County trying to learn about how Paradise came to be. And from there, it was just writing in a way where 
you know, you're learning about the people in the town, but it's also kind of like getting fed spinach in a smoothie where you're also learning about forestry management and you're learning about how we're building in this state and you're learning about the fire risk and you're learning about what we can expect next, right? It's like balancing it just so where um, you're learning as you're getting really engrossed in, in these people's lives. No, I, I, I think you achieved your goal because I, like I, I, it really was something that resonated with me as someone who's worked in this field for many years. Um, speaking on that, also in your research, you, you happened across uh, some, some tribal knowledge. And so would you mind sharing a little bit about um, what you discovered there? And especially as you wove that into the book and almost it seemed like the feeling that you really, you, it had to be in the book mm-hmm. uh, on this, this kind of this story of an oral history about the, the, uh, the impacts of fires and the respect for land and the rebirth of a community uh, following all of that. So I'm, I'm really curious to hear a little bit more about uh, that, that piece of the book as well. Yeah. So in early 2019, it was a few months after the campfire had hit. And so I decided to go on a tour with the leader of the Butte County Fire Safe Council. Um, she had started doing these tours to show people what it looked like after the fire and, you know, would take politicians and would take civilians. And it was this very like heart wrenching way where she was trying to change people's opinions and get them to understand. And so on this tour, there were two members of the Konkau tribe. And so we're standing on this plateau overlooking the community of Konkau and everything underneath us is burnt to a crisp. Um, And they told us this story about these two people in their community and how they had lived through this massive wildfire that was eerily similar to the campfire and how they had to move away. And eventually they came back and saw that their home was greener and healthier for the fire, but that it had changed their lives. And there was something about that, you know, hearing it, I was like, how come we haven't heard about this as much in our history books? How come this is the first time I'm hearing about this legend and I've been doing all of this research in the archives and, you know, hadn't stumbled upon it at that point. And so I knew that it needed to be in the book because I think it offers a really illuminating echo of the fact that these fires happen over and over. They're very cyclical. They tend to strike the same places again and again. And also there is this wealth of knowledge that totally got stomped out when white settlers came over from Europe and brought over their views as fire being this really, really evil thing. Um, And I think we still see remnants of that legacy today where with the big fires rolling through, people see it as a bad thing. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Fire is a healthy part of the environment. And I think there's something we could learn by looking at indigenous um, knowledge of how they lived on the landscape and used fire as a tool. And in terms of that made the environment a healthier place. So I really wanted to um, weave that through the entire story to help people understand that there's this whole prehistory of land and fire management that so often we don't hear about and the ways that we view fire should be much more nuanced than what they are. Mm. Thank you for that. That's really, really insightful and something to really put a lot of thought into and how we, uh, again, are, are create the space for those conversations, uh, both from the standpoint of actual 
meetings and discussions to also just being open-minded for those discussions and how um, various tribes have managed land over the many years prior to you know, colonial settlement and what that means and, and how we need to really think through that um, as we've talked about throughout this whole discussion, the concept of um, living as close to in harmony with nature as possible, especially with, with the infrastructure that we put in place and what that means. Um, speaking of some of the people in your book, um, one, one person, I mean, several, several characters, several people stood out. Um, one in particular was um, some language you had around Beth Bowersox, and uh, she was an emergency dispatcher, uh, but you mentioned that she had to be tough and assertive being uh, a woman in a male-dominated field. So I was wondering if there were more thoughts you had about that, I think both from your going to a, a fire training school, as well as your conversations with Beth around uh, the challenges that, that women face in fighting fire, uh, knowing that there, there are more women in fire, there's, there's efforts to really increase that opportunity, especially given the shortage of firefighters, but, but there are challenges there. Um, yeah. So I just wonder if you wanted to add some additional comments on that. As well. Yeah, I mean, I think it takes a long time to change culture. And that's something that Beth had mentioned to me, that fact that she felt like she had to be tougher than her colleagues. And she was like, well, you know, I, at a certain point I realized I might not always be tougher, but I can be smarter and trying to figure out ways to um, be successful in a career that hasn't always been very welcoming to women. You know, even when I went through my firefighting training and again, that was two weeks out of my life. So I can't speak to, you know, what, what it's like for all women, but I was one of three women in a class of 50. And I remember at one point I was we would all go on these big runs together. And uh, one of the women in the class was like, I feel like I have to try twice as hard to be taken half as seriously as these guys. And this was in 2019, right? So I think, you know, those prejudices still exist and it's something that women are still confronting. It is a very male dominated field. Um, If you go out to any of these wildfires, most of the crews you'll see will be mostly men maybe a few women out there. Um, but I think that is something that could improve, right? We need more representation. Very much so, both from the standpoint of actually fighting the fires and also creating the, the awareness and perception that, that anyone can step into these roles uh, and be successful and put the effort in. So, um, you know, that's, that's one of those key pieces. But related to that, there were a few comments throughout um, that you mentioned where folks had, either, you know, uh, ended up with some of the firefighters that you talked to who had gotten a degree in something else, or they decided to fight fire for the summer, and then they found themselves falling in love with it, and, and then that was their career. Um, any, any other insights related to some of those discussions, just how this, how firefighting kind of, you know, folks end up kind of falling into it in some instances, and not being aware and thinking like, oh, it's, it's great for a few extra bucks, but then you're like, no, it, it's, it fuels something inside of me, you know, kind of there's, there's a theme almost throughout your book around the, the concept of fight, flight, or freeze, and, mm-hmm. and how that plays out in different people in different moments. And obviously for, for firefighters, there's, there's that calling to, to fight against something, to save property, to save lives, to help. And so I just was curious about some of your thoughts and engaging folks and seeing how they ended up being drawn into the profession, either through generations or by random chance. Yeah. You know, so many of the firefighters that I talked to, I was just struck by how much of a helper helpers they were. They just deeply wanted to help others out. 
And so it was that along with the fact that, you know, they found their way into this career where you could be outside and you could work with your hands and you could meet people and you could feel like you were doing something in a way that maybe you couldn't in the career that you thought you were setting out to pursue, right? I feel like there were so many people I talked with that were, you know, going to university to study mapping or to be something else. And then they they worked as a firefighter seasonally for the summer and realized that it was something that they really enjoyed and it sort of got in their blood and they never stopped doing it. Um, and I, I, I think that, you know, firefighters are a really good breed of people and I've always really enjoyed talking with them because they do earnestly just want to help and they want to help you understand. And as a journalist, that was great because I had come from covering politicians who didn't necessarily want to help you understand what they were doing. So um, big fan of firefighters. Excellent. No, thanks for sharing that. Um, so you mentioned earlier that the, the fact that these fires tend to uh, spread, you know, hit the same places and, and the impacts, you know, just kind of are, are exponentially, you know, impactful to, to communities, both from the actual impacts to, to almost the trauma that you face and, and what it means to, to see smoke again, to, to uh, be concerned about your safety in that way and to feel in some ways probably helpless. So I was, I was really curious about, you know, your thoughts on, on three kind of on the same question, but for three different communities um, and, and really looking forward to, to getting your thoughts on these. So, so what do you see as, uh, you know, given that we have these challenges around policy, around a changing climate, around those impacts to these forests and, and what those forests end up impacting communities, what do you see as opportunities for us to improve uh, the condition of our forests and communities, just in a, in a broad, broad stand. Mm-hmm. You know, people always ask me for answers and I, I wish I had them, but as a journalist, again, so much of what I do is just holding a mirror up to the problems. But what I will say that I found from my reporting is I think we have to reckon with our new reality and understanding that we need to start changing the way that we're making decisions and figuring out where to put money Um, so for example, in paradise, so many of those homes had been around for decades. I think it was something like nine out of 10 homes had been built before 1990. And so those weren't homes that had been built in a fire safe way. There was a a state, um, piece of legislation that passed mandating that homes built after a certain date be constructed in a fire safe way, but that did not, uh, predate anything that existed before the legislation. And so, you know, that was something that I heard a lot in Paradise, people saying, you know, I wish I could have done more to build defensible space around my home or change the roof that I had, but I just didn't have the money and there was no funding from the state to retrofit the home. Um, So having conversations about, okay, these places that already exist, what can we do to make them safer? And where does that money come from? And then secondly, again, confronting the fact that these fires aren't just going to go away next year. And so with that, we need to start thinking really critically about where we are building new communities. Is it really a safe idea to build, you know, a luxury apartment building on top of a cliff in San Diego County on a piece of land that is in the wild and urban interface that has likely burned before, you know, like realizing that we need to start changing our decision-making and, and, not think that like that won't happen because at some point it will. I think Mm. those are the biggest things 
I can say is just having conversations about that and asking ourselves, you know, are we planning for the worst case scenario, knowing that that scenario will probably happen at some point? And um, what could we do differently to prevent tragedy from happening again? Great point. So is there any advice that you would share with foresters and firefighters going forward in that same vein? Any advice? I mean, I think, you know, the thing that I come back to time and time and again is that gap between the knowledge that you have as a forester and a firefighter and the knowledge that normal people have about the risk, right? And so, you know, when you're talking with someone, they might not internalize or remember everything that you tell them. So it's important to maybe pick one thing and make sure people know that. And so that is, you know, have a plan and have a go bag, right? Like scare people just a little bit and be like, look, like you need to know what you're going to do if this happens, because all of that time you spend scrolling through Facebook, trying to figure out whether you should evacuate or not the time, like trying to figure out where the baby photos are is time that could save your life. Helping people understand that the risk is there and they need to be able to help themselves. Mm. And you touched on that a little bit. So what advice would you give policymakers? Wow, a lot of advice dispensing today. <laughs> well, you know, you, you've, you've done a lot of studying and research, so it's, it's time to, uh, to wow us with all of your knowledge. Yeah, um, for policymakers, I think, again, the thing to remember is that uh, sometimes those tough decisions are the right decisions, especially if it saves people's lives. Um, you know, it's hard to balance what constituents need, again, in terms of wanting to have a safe community, wanting to have a beautiful community. Like, sometimes it's not in the best interest to narrow the road, knowing that it could have really long-term impacts that might kill people. Um, we really need to think critically about fire danger in this state and how to best protect people. And again, how we're building and where we're building. And I think so often there is that sense of separation where you policymaker or sorry uh, legislators don't want to trample on um, people's well-being and their their right to live and build their homes in the way that they want I think that we owe something to each other to be safe and to build safely and you know that starts with what happens at the capitol very much so all right last bit of advice um, <laughs> and what would you share with community members I think for them, again, just understanding that the calculus has totally changed and you cannot just assume that you're going to be safe, that the fire won't come to your community, even if it has skirted it so many times in the past. Like I've covered so many of these fires where people think they have time or they think they'll be safe. And it's heartbreaking to like hear those phone calls. And then those are the people that, you know, get counted on the fatality list, realizing that the risk is really real and like you don't want to end up like that. You don't want to put other people in a situation where, you know, they're risking their lives to save you or, you know, all of the volunteers that had to go in with search and rescue dogs to pull less than remains out of that rubble, right? Like you have to know that the risk is real and you have to have a plan for yourself too. And you can't just assume someone's going to come save you. 
No, that's a great point. Well, thank you for all that great advice, Lizzie. Thank you for an amazing book. Um, definitely telling plenty of my friends in the fire world about it. And uh, because I believe you did a, a really, really thoughtful job of incorporating stories of both community members and firefighters into uh, something that is digestible, um, that, that hits on some key points that we all need to, to think about and take seriously. And uh, that hopefully will help move us, you know, continue to move us forward in a very positive direction around taking care of communities and our forests, uh, which is supremely important to myself and my organization. So thank you so much for your time today. Uh, yeah. I really enjoyed having a chance to have a conversation with you. And it's always great to, to run into a, another Nebraskan and uh, <laughs> talk about something besides corn, cows, and corn huskers. It, yeah, I was like, where's the football going to come in? <laughs> <laughs> It was really nice talking to you too. It was a great conversation. And thank you for enjoying the book and recommending it to people. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. Be sure to check out our Lectures in History podcast. This week, Professor Allison Lang draws from her book, Picturing Political Power, to discuss how women's voting right activists and their opponents used images to support their causes. And check out C-SPAN's new app called C-SPAN Now. Watch live or on demand C-SPAN's complete coverage of the U.S. House and Senate, congressional hearings, White House events, the courts, campaigns, and more from the world of politics. Find it in the Apple App Store or on Google Play.